Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. It is a reporter's conceit that journalism is the so-called first draft of history. When it comes to the Seminole Wars, it takes a considerable amount of digging into that first draft to determine what information people read at the time. Chris Kimball, who's podcasted with us numerous times, has scoured the pages of the Army-Navy Chronicle, for instance, to identify all references to the Seminole Wars. That was a great task, but it was made somewhat easier in that the ANC concerned itself just with military news. But consider a task that comes from examining what other newspapers of the era with a national reach reported. Take the Niles Weekly Register. The NWR was a general interest publication that included military news. Niles provides a comprehensive analysis of the dramatic and oftentimes violent history of Florida, beginning with the role it played in the War of 1812, moving through an in-depth view of the Seminole Indian Wars, and culminating with the admission of Florida into the American Union. Niles, Florida contains numerous anecdotes and narratives on events that played a key role in the transition of a wild territory to become the 27th state of our American Union. Detailed information in Niles is available on the activities of the Seminole Indians, Africans, British, Spanish, and Americans. Living the experiences of Florida's birth through the eyes of the people who were there, that is the best history lesson you will ever get on this period. David Fowler volunteered for the task of not only identifying, but also republishing every single article or reference to the long Seminole Wars. In a series of volumes, David comprehensively traces and recovers what readers learned in real time about the progress of those regrettable conflicts. He combined his professions as a reporter, a librarian, and a historian to paint a unique picture of the birth and development of the Sunshine State. Its history unfolds like current events, leading readers to turn the pages to discover even more. David Fowler joins us to discuss his monumental undertaking. David Fowler, Welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you, Patrick. I'm uh, glad to be here. David, I've referred to it by name, but just what was the Niles Weekly Register? Well, that's an interesting question. What was the Niles Weekly Register? It was actually a weekly news publication. It was founded by a fellow named Hezekiah Niles in Baltimore, Maryland. From my perspective, it was literally lost in time, except for a few scholars who knew where to find it or who spent years reading the hard copy paper or the microfiche copies that might be available in some of the libraries. So for many years, the defunct Niles Weekly Register lay dormant, accessible only to a few who knew where to look. But that's changed. How so? Fortunately, and I'm kind of speaking for myself going back historically, the advent of the internet brought it back to life with more and more people able to access the pages of what I believe is the jewel of American history, especially around the 1812 time frame, the war that took place back there. As you took a big dive onto this collection, what surprised you? As I read it and explored it, I just came to recognize that there was a lot of Florida material in the Niles Weekly Register. How much material? The five-volume Niles, Florida publications that I present provides all the materials that were extracted from the very comprehensive 75-volume, 30,000-plus pages of the Nile Weekly Register. With nearly 1,800 pages in Niles, Florida, the five-volume, it's uh, comprehensive enough. But just imagine if you were trying to find the Florida material that was scattered throughout the 30,000 pages of Niles Weekly Register. That's what I did. And that obviously was time-consuming, but from my perspective, it was just an interesting thing to do, and it became more interesting as I continued through it. And what was the publication's reach? Well, I'll tell you, it was said to have been the most influential news source of its day. 
Most of the information that was published was read by the more important and more influential politicians here in America. Those who were literate, really, if you think about it, depended on Niles for updates on the events of the day. The paper, as I understood, it was even delivered by ships to foreign countries and embassies who shared a common interest in uh, what was going on. For historians, it's been said to be the most comprehensive source of information that we have today on the War of 1812. If you'll bear with me, let me give you a little anecdotal background to show the influence that now had on reporting for future historians. You know, I go back now. I'm I'm up in the Panhandle of Florida, so it's obvious. I mean, for me, it's obvious that my interests lie in uh, the events that took place here. When I go back to the earlier reporting in Niles, he reported on the massacre at Fort Mims, for example, back in August of 1813. It was seen really as the catalyst for the migration of the Creek Indians into Florida. At Fort Mims, there were several hundred men, women, and children that were slaughtered by the Creek Indians. These uh, Indians were purportedly supported by the British, who were in and around Pensacola at the time. Some sources even state that the British were offering money for scalps. That's rather incredible, to, you know, if you think of it in today's terms, but that was a way of inciting the Indians. And ulterior motive was to cite trouble along the northern Gulf Coast. And how does the Niles Weekly Register fit into this? There was an interesting event that occurred within days after that massacre. The fellow by the name of George Gaines, he was what they call a factor in the Mississippi Territory. He actually reported the massacre to General Jackson, sending a runner from the Fort Mims area to Jackson, who was in Tennessee at the time. Now, George Gaines got together with a group of men within hours after the massacre. And they determined that they needed to report this to the American authorities and that Jackson was the proper person to do it to. So he actually sent a runner on horseback with letters to various people along the route to assist this runner. And uh, I say runner, he was horseback rider. And this fellow uh, rode for four days nonstop, except to to, uh, change horses with uh, people along the route got to Andrew Jackson, who at that point was visiting Governor Blunt at the uh, Capitol. The runner was let in. He uh, provided a letter from George Gaines to Jackson. Jackson, right there on the spot, consulted with uh, Governor Blunt, who sent Jackson as to who this Gaines fellow was. And Jackson told him that he knew the Gaines family. He thought this was important enough to respond to. Within weeks, Jackson was already forming a mounted horse force that we know soon routed the Indians in places like Horseshoe Bend and other places. However, many of these Creek Indians that were in the Mississippi Territory, it's well recognized, escaped and evaded into Spanish Florida. And Niles reports this. So if reporting in Niles Weekly Register was interesting for the historian, then Further information by people on the ground was readily available through Niles' reporting. How did the register compare to other publications of the time that had a national reach, such as the Army-Navy Chronicle? In my opinion, there was a huge difference between Niles and other national publications like the Army-Navy Chronicle. Take that one, for example. The Army-Navy Chronicle ran uh, 1835 to 1842 uh, over that eight-year period, they published about 13 volumes of information that focused primarily on military and naval affairs. On the other hand, the Niles Weekly Register and how broad it was in its coverage, it emphasized not just military affairs, but political, commercial, agricultural, and even industrial news as the industrial age was coming about. They only had a limited amount of attention paid to cultural and social issues of the day. There was a little, but not much. Niles' coverage, by the way, of military events generally, is, from my observation, came from individuals who had recently been in the field. And in many cases, particularly during the Second Seminole War, came from the same official sources as the Army and Navy Chronicle. Beginning in 1811, Niles covered events leading up to the First Seminole War. So there was a 24-year span of American history 
covered by nouns before the Army-Navy Chronicle even came about. Here's one interesting little anecdote that I picked up on. In, in 1813 alone, Niles reported on the activities of no less than 13 Army generals who were involved in the conflict with the Creek Indians. Remember, these were Indians who were actively being supported by the British in Spanish Pensacola and other places along the northern coast of the Gulf of Mexico, including activities that were taking place on the Apalachicola River and, and so forth. At a time in an American society of partisan journalism, which there was quite a bit, the Niles Register contains generally unbiased record, in my opinion. Its national and international circulation surpassed that of any other American paper in its day. And he, Niles, avoided party politics. This distinguished his paper from much of the American journalism in the early 19th century, which I found quite, quite interesting. How does Niles compare to contemporary publications that have a national reach in the United States? That's a good question. How do you translate Niles from the modern publications of today, like the New York Times or the Washington Post? During the first half of the 19th century, the Niles Register, and it was under three different names over this period of time, but it became as well known as the New York Times and the Washington Post are known today. To me, the one significant difference between the modern day journalism of today and that of the early 19th century reporting was in how the articles were submitted. If you think about it, Today's news journalists spend a great deal of time preparing news articles for a, really a time-sensitive publisher, usually. Deadlines play a big role in getting the article published. And reporting also depends on sensationalism in today's reporting, was it not? In the early 19th century, however, Niles depended upon reporting from a wide variety of people. Niles generally reported events verbatim as provided from people not from all areas, like traveling businessmen, military officers, and assorted passengers on sailing ships coming from places of interest like Florida's territory. Much of Niles' reporting, in fact, was direct publication of government documents also, which he felt would be of interest to the public. Niles, on occasion, from my observation, would even republish articles from other local or regional newspapers if the interest was there. You know, Patrick, remember, you were somebody, if you had a letter published in Niles, and articles that, say, from a businessman that was visiting Spanish Pensacola were generally published one or two months after the events, usually, you know, due to the time required to deliver via sailing ship or horseback. A lot, again, this is my observation, a lot of Niles's reporting was what I would call snapshot reporting, short one or two sentence observations showing an update to ongoing events. For example, back in August of 1816 edition, there was one simple comment that stated the infamous Colonel Woodbine has been indicted at Nassau for perjury. Well, for the uninformed reader, this sentence by itself makes little sense. Individual who has followed the activities of the British through the pages of Nile, Woodbine would have been well known. In fact, in uh, Niles, Florida, just in volume one alone, his antics are recited on 39 different occasions. So they would have known who he was, and that was typical of Nile. What's the benefit of reading your Niles, Florida, as opposed to reading the original documents that have been scanned and posted online for the entire publication? Why are reading the Niles, Florida volumes different from the original Niles Weekly Register papers, which are, today, they are available on the internet. Well, for me, Niles, Florida provides the framework in historical terms that allows those that are interested in Florida's early 19th century history to follow the contemporary stories that were being told by people that were on the ground at the time. Aside from the fact that the original Niles Register papers are difficult to read due to their deteriorated condition, the original papers provided over 30,000 pages of comprehensive coverage of the United States and the world. However, with Niles, Florida, you're watching as daily and weekly events unfold from a contemporary point of view 
from multiple sources, but again, it's Florida-centric news. Articles, personal letters, and anecdotal stories were extracted from the comprehensive weekly national and international coverage that was scattered throughout thousands of pages. So in essence, Niles Florida allows you to immerse yourself in the Florida story without the distractions of everything else that was going on in the world in the early 19th century. Chris Kimball has said when he picked up the Army-Navy Chronicle and read a story, he wanted to read more. And if it referred to an earlier article, he wanted to go back to that, and it could become quite addicting. Seems the same type of bug might have taken you on your adventure in collecting these articles. That's basically how it started. And as you go through the paper, you discover some item of interest, and you realize, I've got to know more about this. And that's what made it so exciting for me. This became an adventure. And when did you begin this adventure? I started this project way back. I was in the military at the time, and I was a temporary duty down in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And I'm going back to, I uh, think, about 1985. It was just a coincidence that I visited an Indian Temple Mound. It was a park in the middle of uh, the little town, Fort Walton Beach. And while I was there, I picked up a brochure that included a brief commentary about a black Seminole named Abraham. Well, how about that? Listeners to this podcast know well who Abraham was. I had no idea who Abraham was. I'm kind of an old redneck from the uh, Riviera up here in the Panhandle. I grew up in Panama City. But when I returned a few weeks later to my home unit up in Virginia Beach, this idea of Abraham just uh, persisted, and I began researching him purely out of personal interest. Remember, back in the mid-'80s, there was no Internet. And if you wanted to research something involving history going back that far, you really mostly found it on microfish. So thinking back, this is when my hobby on Florida history research really began, was the mid-'80s. I vividly remember finding I found something on Abraham in microfish at a public library in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I vividly remember that because I paid 10 cents a page to copy several dozen pages that were written by, if I recall, it was a fellow named Porter. It was a professor up north somewhere. That would be the late Professor Kenneth W. Porter, the former professor of history at the University of Oregon, who began researching black seminal history back in the 1930s. That attracted me. And so one thing led to another as I'm reading this stuff and discovering. I was interested in that sort of historical information in the 80s. I had attended graduate school up at Troy State University and got a degree in international studies. Part of that really dealt with history. And that just kind of furthered my interest. In the early 90s, I attended graduate school at Florida State University, where I earned a degree in library science that just moved along my interest. And this was a period of time, if you recall, in the early 90s was where the Internet was first introduced to the world. It was around, but in classified circles for official use only. You experienced an ecstasy probably only felt before by one Alexander Graham Bell and Samuel Morse. Tell us about that. I remember on the third floor of the library science building there at FSU, I was in one room and the instructor was right next door in the next room and we were communicating with one another from computer to computer. No imagery, it was just text only. Well, that was the introduction of the internet and man, it has exploded as we have all seen. And that first touch of the Seminole Wars through the study of Abraham got you on to the rest of this project. I actually spent a number of years simply reading and collecting tidbits of information about Abraham and the other events that, around him that occurred. At some point, though, I began to recognize that many of the historians, you know, history scholars, were depending on this thing called the Niles Weekly Register for their information. So by the, uh, let's see, by the early 2000s, I began seeing Niles published on the Internet in various forms and on different platforms. So you see from early 90s, when the Internet just first blossomed to a decade later, I continued seeing this information, and I persisted looking for information on Abraham and soon discovered that there was vast amounts of information on early Florida 
that was equally intriguing, ranging from the early British intrigues in and around Pensacola, continuing with Andrew Jackson's forays through the Panhandle and following through the next decades of war throughout the Florida Peninsula. I know that your interests lie down in the peninsula, down around Tampa, just an abundance of things that I knew nothing about. And so it's like a kid that's on an adventure finding new things. I began to collect information on Florida, believing it might just make an interesting book. And it didn't take long, though, to come to the realization that there was far more than one book. You know, initially it was on Abraham. So you can imagine, okay, this kid went looking for stuff on Abraham, but then I discovered that that Florida's history was far more intriguing, you know, more so than just Abraham. I wanted to know more about these activities, uh, the adventure and excitement of finding something new. You know, it just kind of took over, and I began to see this as sort of an adventure into Florida's past. Remember, this was a hobby for me that was undertaken during the evening hours. You know, fellas on the job, after putting kids to bed, I would sit there in the evenings and uh, just explore this stuff until it was time to go to bed, and uh, I would just continue. So you didn't start out with a full court press on this. You picked it up a little bit at a time. This is true. It was absolutely piecemeal to begin with. Initially back in the early 90s, late 80s actually, is when I first discovered this notion that there was a national newspaper called Niles Weekly Register. It really had little idea of where to locate it. The United States has a number of what they call national libraries. There was one at Florida State University. There was another at the University of West Florida. I believe that, well, I know that Gainesville had one down there. And uh, those were places where you could go to look at hard copy in some cases, but in more cases, it was on microfiche. It wasn't until the advent of the Internet to the public that it began just blooming, just blossoming, that you could find more and more volumes that were on the Internet. Even then, initially, it was difficult to find. You would find some for, let's see, I think, for example, Project Gutenberg was one of the initial projects that had snippets. It wasn't much, but you'd find a little bit. Some of it would be in the PDF format. A number of them, uh, snippets were available in what they called deja vu format, which initially was becoming a popular format. It kind of died out. And I, I think that the format for historic materials has predominantly become the PDF format. It's an Adobe Acrobat product. That PDF is viewable in a number of different platforms. And where to find it became an issue. And so you'd search. I think archive.org was a place to find some of these things. But again, they were piecemeal. And so you're continuously searching for some item or another. And thank goodness, the explosion of the internet just allowed me to go out and find these volumes. And I have to say, can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but there's a fellow that created an index out in California. And Mr. Earl, who was residing in California at the time, developed an index of the Niles Register. It wasn't the paper itself. It was just an index for those for scholarly workers who were interested in further research. They could go and use his index, and he charged a fee for access initially. It wasn't until I think about 2018 that I believe that as he grew older, I guess he decided that it was appropriate to donate his index to the Maryland archival folks who put it on their site. The Maryland government has his index on their site to allow you to search the entire Niles Register. David, that's right. That says in the Maryland State Archives Guide online that the cumulative index was compiled, edited, and designed by William H. Bill Earl beginning in 1995, and that he offered subscriptions to access the content he continued expanding and updating his website until, as you say, 2018. And in that year, he donated the Cumulative Index database to the Maryland State Archives to supply the public with free online access to his resources. Quick Google search will get you right there. That absolutely it helps anyone who's researching anything dealing with the War of 1812 in particular 
for me personally, what it did was allowed me to expand my search. It's, I'm like a criminal investigator wanting to find something. One little anecdote I'll share with you. Edmund Gain was a significant person throughout Now's reporting. I did a lot of searching on Edmund Gaines. He was just one of those people that, that were out there that I wanted to know more about. And I discovered where Edmund Gaines was buried. And my wife and I decided to uh, take a trip to go and look for him. And we found him. Is in a, a nondescript little cemetery that's right in the middle of Mobile, Alabama. I asked my wife, and today in Gainesville, Florida, I think there's about 300,000 people that live in and around Gainesville. How many of those people do you think even know where Edmund Gaines is located today? You know, the namesake of their city. I would dare say that only a small percentage would know that he was in this nondescript little cemetery. But Niles reported extensively on his activities throughout his years as a military officer, but also the fact that he had passed and they made the trip from New Orleans, where he died, to Mobile with much pomp and circumstances, and they reported it extensively. And as my wife and I went and knelt down beside his grave, because I had read this and I knew about it, it just, in your mind, it brings back the, all of that. It, it makes you, you feel the sense that you were a part of that train ride coming back, and you knew what had happened. That, to me, is what makes uh, reading Niles uh, so exciting, is that he provided so much detail that uh, for those people that take the time to go back and look at this, it's easy just to become a part of it. With your natural curiosity, it must have been hard not to get distracted by all the articles that were available there, but many of them which were not of Florida interest. <laughs> that was rather hard to do at times. It was easy to get off task. <laughs> I will tell you that happened many times as I read through the pages of Niles. You know, my focus was on uh, Florida at the time, but I would occasionally get off task. I discovered that I could bring it back to what was going on. And I'm thinking of one example was a fellow named Andrew Ellicott. As I reflect on who Ellicott was, Andrew Ellicott in and of itself was an interesting person, expounding on the description that uh, you made on, on the Army-Navy Chronicle. As a librarian, that was my second career, and I spent two dozen years doing this. I recognized the value of pursuing an article or a story beyond what was actually in the Nile. You tend to get off uh, track on what your focus was. I go back, I like to cite Andrew Ellicott, as an example of this, I knew who Ellicott was, basic. I didn't know a lot about him. As I'm reading through Niles, I noticed that Niles reported, and Niles typically did this. He would report something with just one sentence. That was the article. One sentence, he noted that Andrew Ellicott was assigned as a professor of mathematics at West Point back in October of 1830. In a separate article later on, he reported that Ellicott had died at West Point in August of 1820 at the age of 67. That's all it said. And so it begs the question, well, then the world would be reading this and would understand who he even was. And you have to go back to the contemporary time and recognize that well, anyone who read the newspaper and was up on what was going on in America back in the day, and you know, remember back at that time, America was comprised of only about 9 million people. What are we today? About 330 million. So it was a little easier to keep track of, of current events back in that day. Certainly, the contemporary reader of the Weekly Register, they knew who he was. If Niles felt it's important enough to place this in his paper, I wanted to know more about who Ellicott was. So Ellicott's significance to Florida's history preceded the, the publication of Niles. For example, in 1799, what was Ellicott doing? He was trudging along the border between the Mississippi Territory and Spanish Florida, delineating the boundary. And this was per the uh, what they called the Treaty of San Lorenzo, just as a 
point of reference, it was actually Ellicott's surveyor, David Gillespie, who was out of North Carolina, who actually surveyed the line from Natchez on the Mississippi River to the Okefenokee Swamp, while Ellicott sailed from river to river and met Gillespie. Washington had designated Ellicott as the commissioner for the expedition, so he gets the credit. At any rate, suffered a significant debilitating disability from poison ivy while he was moving through the woods in the Florida Panhandle. For example, he spent about three months in the Pensacola area alone. But as Ellicott describes it himself, he says the only relief he got was from spending hours at night bathing in the cool water of the Apalachicola River. It was worse, and his survey team were scattered by the marauding Indians. This is along the Apalachicola River, who had previously related that they simply wanted to stop them and run them off. Ellicott managed to make his way to the Spanish fort at St. Mark's, where he no doubt received medical attention from the the Spanish surgeon who was assigned there at St. Mark's, and his name was Eugenio Sierra, Dr. Sierra. Well, interestingly, Dr. Sierra was subsequently transferred back to Pensacola, where he eventually retired from the Spanish military and built a medical practice there in Pensacola. Dr. Sierra introduced the first French-built guillotine in his practice. It was the only authorized guillotine in the U.S. And you see, these are interesting little tidbits that really have nothing to do with my search for Abraham. Dr. Sierra established wealth through land deals and taking care of slaves in Pensacola. Unfortunately for Dr. Sierra, that is, one of his slaves was recruited by the British in 1814, who the slave purportedly joined the Corps of Colonial Marines. The British at this point were preparing for the eventual invasion of New Orleans, as we know historically. And that's the time frame that Niles Weekly Register was really reporting a lot about. So this starts to come together, where I had diverted off, gone off on a tangent looking for um, Andrew Ellicott and ran into Dr. Sierra. Now it's kind of bringing it back home because when Andrew Jackson invaded Pensacola in November of 1814 to stop the British activities there, the British, what did they do? They simply picked up their troops and sailed out of the harbor, blowing up the Spanish Barrancas on their way out. Jackson immediately departed for New Orleans, and the British simply moved eastward to the Apalachicola River, where they had recently established a British fort, a British post just about 12 miles up the Apalachicola River. Now, this is where the Weekly Register starts picking up on this stuff, and you're reading about these events about this time. You, You didn't know about the events of Ellicott because that was before, but Ellicott himself had published his journal and that kind of expanded or expounded on what Niles would later report on. At any rate, shortly after the Treaty of Ghent, the British left the British post, leaving it to a rather large group of African slaves and a few Indians. Elements of what they call the Corps of Colonial Marines, that's worth studying in and of itself. These Marines, who were largely the blacks that the British had recruited, who didn't wish to go with the British, they left them behind. And uh, interestingly, Dr. Sierra's slave was without a doubt one of these individuals that was left behind. His name was Abraham. And the Niles Weekly Register reported on his activities through the next decade as the interpreter, sense-bearer, and consultant to Micanopy. As an interesting side note, because I live up here in the Panhandle, I visited Pensacola not too many years ago and had a a rather one-sided conversation with Dr. Sierra as I stood over his grave at St. Michael Cemetery, which is located downtown Pensacola next to the convention center. That's how you can get off track if you're not careful. But it was interesting. It was exciting. And so as an investigator of history, initially had learned things about Abraham. Let me share a little bit of what you can learn and how I did it and how I continue to do it because I published these back in 2015, I think was the last one. And so it's been a few years and I continue in the same vein because Florida history to me is so exciting. And I'm working on a few manuscripts 
couple of which are historic fiction types of novels. I'm, you might say, in the same vein as James Mishner, who would take true historical facts and develop a fiction novel around those. And I'm making an effort to work in that same vein at the current time. Looking back, thinking about the day-to-day account, when you begin to read volume one, for example, you soon discover the interrelationship between the Indians, is predominantly the Creek Indians, and the British and the Spaniards. They were all kind of intermixed, intertwined with one another. As you continue to read volume one, it becomes apparent that the Indians were opposed to the intervention by the Americans on their land. It's their land here in Florida. You also recognize that the Creek Indians really in control of their own destiny in Spanish Florida, at least until the American forces thrust their power across the border. You also come to recognize that Florida or Spanish Florida has really become a safe haven for former African slaves that for such a long time that many of the former slaves' children have been born and raised predominantly along uh, some of the principal rivers like Apalachicola River, the Suwannee River, the St. John's River, the Withlacoochee, and others. These are things that you discover as you read through the pages of Niles, Florida. To me, in the field of education, this is referred to as reading for understanding or reading for comprehension. You literally become a part of the story as you read the day-to-day account. Let me add to this now. If you also read the books and manuscripts that were written by people that were there, like Andrew Jackson's uh, uh, letters back to to Washington, George Gaines, who was a factor in the Mississippi Territory that dealt with these Indians coming back and forth across the border, getting resupplied and rearmed by the British. George Gaines' brother, who happened to be General Edmund Gaines. George McCall who is a young lieutenant right out of West Point that was assigned to 4th Infantry in Pensacola, who subsequently went down and you know, helped build the fort down there in Tampa, Fort Brooks. Ethan Allen Hitchcock, John Sprague, and others. You begin to corroborate the news and current events that are highlighted in Niles, Florida, or Niles Weekly Register. David, corroboration doesn't necessarily mean agreement. You also visualize different versions of the same story. Hitchcock, for example, talked about how difficult it was to identify the individual officers in the aftermath of the horrendous deed massacre, which I know you're intimately familiar with. However, George McCall, who was also on the ground with Gaines' unit there in the aftermath, said that practically all of the officers were personally recognizable by somebody in Gaines' group. George McCall, for example, personally recognized Major Dade, whose body was laying there, because he knew him personally as Captain Dade back when they were stationed together at Pensacola back in 1822. He also personally recognized Gartner from his days when Gartner was assigned as an instructor, I believe, at West Point when McCall was going to. So those were two officers that he said, I positively recognized them, even though they had been laying there for so long. And he said, many of my fellow soldiers recognized the different troops that were laying there on the ground so that many, if not most of them, were identified. So that kind of contrasted with Hitchcock's description that they were hard to identify. You really begin to understand how the story unfolds as you read the day-to-day events in Niles, Florida. As you said before, it's because Niles, Florida is an extraction from an extremely large comprehensive collection. It just makes Florida's history so much easier to read. If you're interested in Niles, Florida, after hearing this podcast, where should you begin? Could you pick it up just anywhere in the narrative? My personal opinion for the casual reader, it might be more interesting to begin with volume one because you get a more complete picture of how the story of Florida unfolds. However, thanks to the designated subheadings that I put in, you can select most any starting point to discover what happened at a particular time or place. Further, 
I think for the more scholarly researcher who has an interest in a particular time frame, each volume identifies the dates of the original publication. So this facilitates searching for specific events that may have been published in Niles, the original Niles Weekly Register. The way that it's put together It reads like a newspaper because that's basically what it is. But it's a newspaper that focuses solely on Florida's history. And even Mr. Earl's index that is online with Maryland government listed as the Niles Register Cumulative Index is a search. And they also provide the PDF version of the volumes online. So you can go back and expand your search through the online index if you desire to do that, or you can use the subheadings that are provided at the front of each of the Florida volumes. For a historian, being able to corroborate stories is just essential, and Niles provides that corroboration. That's absolutely true. Niles, much of the reporting on the war in Florida, for example, came from individuals that came out of Florida and shared their stories about what was happening. Remember, in the early 19th century, radio and television didn't exist. Newspaper publishing was beginning to reach out, expanding its readership across the landscape. Publishers like Niles depended on the input from people across the country to report on what they had seen and heard, because it was a prestigious newspaper in its time, in some cases even more so today, thanks to the broad access to books and manuscripts that uh, earlier historians would not have had. Even your most scholarly historians did not have access to the information that you have today. For modern day historians like you and me, the importance of corroboration can't be stressed enough. The lessons that I stressed to students was the importance of confirming the accuracy of an event. And how did you do that? By finding other sources to either corroborate or not any particular event. I'll give you an example. Courts, the map of the Dade Massacre, Hitchcock, you know, Ethan Allen Hitchcock, And George McCall, for example, as I've already described, that there was disparities in their reporting about an event that actually took place. And overall, they were accurate. Another big one that I recall was the reporting on the origin of the Florida War between Hitchcock and the collection of the Niles Register article. Whereas Hitchcock reported in his book, 50 Years in Camp, he reported that the sheriff's patrols coming into Florida to track down fugitive slaves was the primary reason for the uprising of the Indians. Whereas from my observation and all that I've read, Niles clearly shows fairly continuous reporting that earlier British-Spanish influence played a key role in igniting the ire of the Creek Indians, many of whom eventually migrated the Spanish Florida, that that was a much more violent and contentious reason for the Indians moving into Florida and being ready for any interventions that may have come from the Americans. That's not to say that Hitchcock was not correct. He was correct in that there were sheriff's patrols that would come down and try to track down the fugitive slaves, and the Indians did not want to have anything to do with that. But the look at Niles and go back decades before, you could clearly see that there was much greater influence in the violent disputes that took place from about 1812, 13, 14 time frame. There were a lot of violence that took place in the panhandle that would continue as you progress through Niles. So Hitchcock was just a part of that, but he wasn't the full story. How did the jobs you held in your life help you to accomplish this task of pulling this all together? I would simply say that as a librarian or a media specialist is what I was, I recognized the value of pursuing an article beyond the few sentences that might have been in one of Niles' publications. I've already uh, described Andrew Ellicott and how that eventually grew from Ellicott through Dr. Sierra on into what Abraham eventually did. Basically, it was my ability to continue to research materials to either corroborate information or to show through repeated sources, through multiple sources, the accuracy or inaccuracy of information. That was probably the key for me, is just being persistent, following up on research, and being able to show 
without a doubt, I mean, you can never be 100% sure about events, but you can be more sure if you find more than one source that corroborates your original information. What surprised you most in your research from what you found? <laughs> what surprised me most about that, what I found, that I initially <laughs> thought that the things I had learned about Abraham and the Seminoles would make an interesting read. So I really began to think about compiling a book. As I began researching and locating and typing the material, it soon became apparent that this was far more than would be practical for a single book. But you know what allowed me to continue? It was really the extreme interest that Florida's history brought. And so I continued pursuing these stories. And before long, I literally began to feel like I was a part of the story. After reading about an event, I would pursue more information to discover what happened next. Again, for educators, this is the essence of what's called reading for understanding. As I got into it, I would want to go even further. And that's really how I got into it. With the tools today that allow it to be more interesting for myself, for anyone that goes online to search for materials or, you know, searching a particular thing, I use a tool Google Earth, for example, is an interesting tool to me that allows you to follow these events graphically. I talked about Andrew Ellicott, and Ellicott provided a journal that described the different places that he traveled and the events that he saw, the things that he did. Well, I used Google Earth to pin the locations, and, and I actually placed, put place marks on Google Earth. And it allows you to provide descriptions and even images that enhance your journey through Florida's past. Things like Google Earth, and as the Internet has evolved, and more and more resources become available that allow folks like you and me to study history like never before. I go back and look at these place marks, for example, on Google Earth to remind me, oh, gosh, yes, I vividly remember reading that in now. That enhanced the interest is what I'm saying. Your book is available in hard copy format, but also in Kindle. What are some advantages and or disadvantages of using a electronic database to find stories? Some years back, I read somewhere, and I thought it was in Niles, and it may be in Niles, but I didn't mark it. It was an article or a comment about a businessman that had visited in Spanish Pensacola, and while he was there, and I'm thinking this was around somewhere around 1814 or 1816 or somewhere in that time frame. While he was there, he saw the British marching in the streets of Pensacola, training both the Indians and Africans in a drill and ceremony and basically getting that military instruction. To me, that was a telltale sign of, yeah, they're absolutely getting them ready to do battle or whatever. This went back further to the recognition that the British were forming these so-called Corps of Colonial Marines, which were the black units that they were going to use and that they did use both up and down the eastern seaboard, but as well in the Gulf of Mexico area. And I went back because I thought that was such an interesting story, and I know I saw it somewhere. I cannot find it. I've been looking for a couple of weeks now just trying to find that because I thought that's an interesting anecdote. But I've not yet been able to find it. And I'm sure that it's like my daddy says, it's always the last place you look. Which leads to another concern about the writing back in the day. You have to be careful about trying to use an index, like an intronic index, to find something because the spellings are so different. You may find, and I'm talking about people that know how to write, ran across, for example, the word Seminole spelled S-I-M-I-N-I-L-E. That was, uh, I guess, the phonetic spelling that someone out in the field had put down, but you won't find that in an electronic index. And uh, the spellings of many of the Indian names are so vastly different depending on who uh, wrote it. And in most cases, I found that Niles would publish it exactly as it was received. I find that to be interesting. And in fact, that's one of the things I think are most surprising about reading historic documents like Niles. When you read it, you have to understand what they're talking about and who they're talking about and the places 
even though they may be spelled like the Withlacoochee River was spelled four or five different ways. You're going to have difficulty, even in today's world, on electronic indexes, being able to find all of that material. We started our discussion talking about the Niles Weekly Register as the first draft of history. What's another way of looking at it and its importance? The Niles Weekly Register acted as a, if you look at it in biological terms, Niles Weekly Register was like the skeleton of the body. You'd find the information in Niles and you could reach out to other sources to add on, make it a more of a full story than what Niles had. But if it weren't in Niles, you wouldn't know about it. Niles, it seemed, provided a platform for eyewitness accounts to get published. Some officer that was leaving the battlefield by steamboat going up the St. John's River and stopping in Savannah, Georgia, may talk to a reporter there at that location for some local newspaper, provide a detailed description of some local battle that took place, which otherwise you may have never heard about. As we wrap up, at least with our tongues firmly in cheek. What advice do you have for someone who'd want to embark on such a project after encountering some historical tidbit that they'd like to learn more about? You know the old saying, be careful what you ask for. It was a weekend visit to an Indian mound led to a more than three-decade passion for learning Florida's history. I've enjoyed it, and I continue to do so. David Fowler, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. This was a great exercise, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.